Okay, it's uh, really good to see all of you here today. Now, uh, over the last few weeks, we've been looking at uh, the book of Romans, and it's been really helpful because it's been giving us a very clear picture of what it means to actually be saved. Now, I think Singaporeans are very pragmatic people, right? Uh, We're not very sentimental, and we're very interested in the bottom line, you know, the so what question. Like Lee Kuan Yew said, we're not really interested in theory. We just want to know what works in practice. What's the result? What are the consequences? What happens at the very end? Now, as you've been looking at the, the book of Romans, as you can see up here, uh, basically, we've been asking the question, how do we get to heaven? How are we saved? And we learned right from the very beginning that God is the perfect judge. He sees everything. He knows everything. He sees the deepest, darkest secrets of our hearts. And as the perfect judge, he never misses anything, never makes a mistake. And therefore, in this way, all of us are actually judged by God. We cannot work towards salvation because man, woman, child are all judged by the things that we've done and we will all be found guilty. Therefore, we cannot work to save ourselves. But instead, as we've learned, God judges Jesus on the cross instead. And on the cross, Jesus takes away all our sins. So, like, uh, I like this, I really like this illustration that Nick had, right? So, God takes away our sin, okay? And He, we give the sin to Jesus, and God gives us His righteousness instead, right? We are now right before God because Jesus has taken away our sins, and we have been given Jesus' righteousness instead. And therefore, what we need is to have faith in Jesus on the cross. Now today, as we look at chapter 5, chapter 5 continues on from chapter 4 and develops what is being said in chapter 4. So in chapter 4, verse 23, it says, The words it was credited to him was, was, were not written for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, dot, dot, dot. Okay, so if you look up here, right, because we've now been given this righteousness, okay, because we've been given this righteousness, okay, this sign again, right, this righteousness, and because we are now justified or legally declared uh, not guilty before God, right? What does it now mean, right? What does it mean for us today? Does it mean that we just go on our merry way and we say, "Oh, great, you know, I'm now innocent, I'm now justified, I'm now righteous"? As Singaporeans, that won't do, right? Because we want to know what happens now. So what? What are the consequences of being justified? What are the consequences of being right before God? And if you look in this passage, there are three things that come out from this. It says, Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, there are three things which happen to us, three consequences. First thing is we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The second thing is, we have now gained access by faith into this grace we now stand. And the third thing is, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now the first thing is, because we're now justified and right with God, we now have peace with God. Now, peace is a relational word. Justified is a legal word. When you are justified, it means that the judge says to you, you are not guilty, you are innocent, 
you're cleared of all the charges. But then the judge goes home and he never sees you again. And he, you know, he doesn't want to know anything about you. The case is closed, right? But God is not like that. God declares us justified. And because we're now justified and not guilty and we're right with God, we are now at peace with God. And this peace is an objective peace. It means that we are no longer in conflict with God. There is no war, there is true friendship, and there is reconciliation. Now in this world, many people seek to have peace, but there is no real objective peace. So in a marriage, there may be silence, but the silence doesn't mean that there is peace, it just means that I tolerate you, right? I'm ignoring you. There's a silent war, but there's a fake peace. But here, according to God, when there is justification, there is real peace between God and man. Now, I remember when I first became a Christian, I became a Christian uh, quite late in life, I think I was about 22, and I remember the night I became a Christian, I was lying in bed, and I had been convinced that the Bible was real and true, and God was real and true, and I remember tossing and turning in bed at night, it was about 12, 1 o'clock, and I couldn't sleep. And the reason why I couldn't sleep wasn't because I had insomnia, but because I felt dread and fear, because of the implications of what I realized, that if God was real and the Bible was true, then He was angry with me and I was in real danger because I didn't have peace with God. He, if I died that night because of a heart attack or something, I would die with God being angry with me. And therefore, I needed to find peace with God, and I found peace with God, as it says there, through faith in Jesus Christ. But the, that's just the first thing we get, right, because of our faith in Jesus and being justified. The second thing it says there is that we have now gained access by faith into this grace that we now stand. Now, what does it mean to get into grace? We learned before that grace is God's undeserved generosity towards us. We learned before that uh, grace was something which was like undeserved mercy. To actually move into grace, I think what it's trying to say here is, is to move into the sphere of grace. Right? Oh, this makes it easier for you to understand. Okay, next one. To, to actually go into God's grace is to actually move into His sphere or the realm of of God's grace. See, God is offering you grace, right? Okay, just as I offer you a present or a gift or something. But until you accept that you're not really in inside my good grace, right? That the offer is there, but you've not actually appropriated it. You've not actually benefited from it. But when you come and accept the gift of Jesus Christ, you come into the realm of God's grace. That means God's attitude to you, God's outlook towards you, God's relationship with you is now determined not by conflict but by grace and everything God does towards you because of Jesus is now gracious and now generous and now merciful the third thing that we get now is to be able to stand and boast or rejoice in the hope of the glory of God now what does it mean uh, if we move backwards to rejoice or to boast in the glory of God. Do we rejoice like we see the glory of God? You know, like a tourist. So, you know, you go to see the, the, the London Bridge 
or you you know you go and see the Empire State Building or you go and see I don't know the Marina Bay Sands or something, right? I think it's much more than that, right? Because you rejoice or you boast in the glory of God, not because you see it or you witness it, but because you share in it. You have a part in God's glory. You know, it's it's a very different thing from being a, a tourist and witnessing the glory of God than having a share of the glory of God. But here, this is the picture here, right? We have the hope of sharing in the glory of God. Now, if you look at these uh, things that we get, right? Uh, the peace, the grace, and the hope. Two of those things are in the present tense, and one of them is in the future. So what are the two things in the present, and what's in the future? Huh? Someone's murmuring something. Okay, don't worry, this, bubble, this uh, sermon is very interactive, so you're, you're meant to reply, right? Okay. So what are the two present, and what uh, is the, the future? Okay, the peace and grace is something that we already have now. We are at peace with God. We are in, in the realm of grace of God. But the future is the hope in the glory of God when it comes that we have a share in it, right? So in verse 3 to 5, it outlines to us why we are able to rejoice in something that might or might not happen, right? How can you rejoice in something in the future? You know what I mean? It's like you have to be sure of it before you can rejoice or boast about it, right? So in verse 3 to 5, it says, Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom He has given us. Now how can you say that you can rejoice in suffering? Anybody here rejoice in sufferings? Anybody look forward to suffering? No, right? We run away from suffering. We dread suffering. But, but here, suffering is something that we can rejoice in because it is linked to our rejoicing and our hope. Because, as we see here, the logic is this, right? If I rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, I can rejoice in my sufferings because my sufferings actually produce perseverance or endurance, toughens me up, produces character, my inner strength, and this in turn strengthens my hope to keep looking forward to Jesus Christ coming again. You see, I don't rejoice in suffering by itself, but I rejoice in what suffering produces in building up my hope of the God, the glory of God coming. You see, it's very important for us to realize that the hope of the Bible of Romans chapter 5 is not like our worldly hope. You see, uh, I remember when I, when I watched the World Cup recently, which was a few years ago, right? I, 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 I hoped that Brazil would win the World Cup. But Brazil lost to Germany, I think like what? 7-1 or 7-0 or something, right? And that was really, really disappointing right i was like put to shame because i hoped in this team that lost 7-1 to germany and that's exactly what is the opposite of what the bible says of biblical hope in verse 5 it says very clearly up there right 
Oops, no, don't worry about that. It says, and hope does not put us to shame. Or if you have the older version, the version, the version of the NIV says, NIV says, and hope does not disappoint us. You see, the problem with worldly hope is that it can disappoint us and it often disappoints us. And it puts us to shame because I might hope in somebody or something, but they let me down. I may hope in an event, but it doesn't come true. But look at what it says here. Very clearly in verse 5, hope in the glory of God does not disappoint us. Hope in the glory of God does not put us to shame. And why is that? Because it says, God has poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit that He has given us. Because of God's love, we know that the hope that we have will never fail us, never disappoint us, never put us to shame. Now, see, want to put some culture in your life, right? So, if you ever, there's this very famous uh, uh, play that uh, you, you might have heard of because in the first services I've talked about before, many years ago, a few months ago, called uh, Waiting for Godot. Anyway, Huili will know it, right? Because it's a very philosophical play, right? Okay. And actually, in a way, it's very boring. Right? If, if you are into Hollywood movies, after 10 minutes, you would think, why am I wasting my time here? Right? Because the whole play is really only about two people and the whole play is about them waiting for Godot. And Godot is meant to represent God. And God never comes. Right? They hope for God. They talk about God. They try to give explanations for why God didn't come. But they are waiting away till the very end. But that's not the God of the Bible or the Father of Jesus because the love of God assures us that our hope in the glory of God will not disappoint. Now how is that so? How will that play out? Well, the next passage tells us, right? You see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now this section here is trying to show us why God's love assures us that His hope will come true. How great is God's love? Well, God's love is such that if you look up here in this passage, ooh, that while we were still powerless, in verse 6, while we were still ungodly, in verse 6, while we were still sinners, in verse 8, and while you look in verse 10, while we were enemies of God, God sent Jesus to die for us. Now, I want you to think for a second, right? If you put all these four things together, powerless, ungodly, sinners, and in verse 10, enemies, these are all very, very negative descriptions of humanity, right? We were powerless because as we've seen over the last few weeks, we were morally powerless to change ourselves, our inner nature, to, to be people who are holy and righteous before God. No matter what we do, we still sin. So I always remember, uh, I don't even know where I heard this illustration before, but I've heard it many times about the story about the, the frog and the scorpion. 
right? About how the scorpion wants to go across the river. Have you all heard this before? The scorpion, uh, sorry, the scorpion wants to go across the river. So he can't get across the river, so he asked the frog to take him across the river. And then the frog says, but, but if I take you across the river, you know, you've got that very uh, poisonous sting in your tail. You might sting me, and then we will, we will die. And the scorpion says, why would I do that? Why would I sting you? Because we will both die. So anyway, the, the, the frog takes the scorpion on his back. It's just an illustration, right? Okay, anyway. So he's swimming across the, the, the river, when all of a sudden, he feels a sting. And then he says to the scorpion, why did you sting me? Right? Didn't you say that you wouldn't sting me? Because if you sting, stung me, we will both die? And then the scorpion says, I couldn't help it. It was my nature. And that's the nature of humanity. We were powerless to change. We were powerless to stop sinning. We were powerless to be holy and righteous before God. We were ungodly, says in verse 6. We were the very opposite of God. We were not God-like, but we were ungodly. We did everything opposite to God. We were imperfect and impure before God. We were, as it says there in verse 8, we were sinners. We fall short of God's standard. And in verse 10, we were enemies of God. We, we resisted God. We, we, we basically are unwilling to sit under the authority of God in our lives. So the cumulative effect of these four things is really terrible, right? We are sinners, we are powerless, we are enemies, and we are ungodly. And this is not our opinion, this is God's opinion, and God always is right in His opinions. So how should God treat us if we treat Him this way? Obviously, He should feel angry, right? Uh, If you've ever seen married couples who've been betrayed or dumped, or deserted in love, how do they feel? They feel very angry. right? They, they, they say, how dare the person do that? How could they do that? And that's how God should feel, right? Because we betrayed God, we've turned our back against God, we've not worshipped God like we should. But how does God respond instead? God responds with love, isn't it? It says there. Instead of anger rightly and righteously applied to us, He shows us His love. And in fact, he says there in verse 7, um, a very powerful statement, but a very confusing statement. He says, Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. So he's saying, look, it's very rare, maybe 1% chance that, you will, that people will die for a righteous person, a, 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 a good person in a sense. Uh, but then why does he say, someone might possibly die for a good man, a good person. Uh, many people feel that the good man here, or good person, is a, is a benefactor. Someone who uh, uh, gives you money. Someone who is generous towards you. He, that's a good person. So what Paul is really saying here, what Paul is saying in the Bible, is that there's very minimal chance that someone would die for you, even if you were a righteous person. Someone might possibly dare to die for you, maybe 5%, 10% chance, if you were a benefactor to them, looking after them. But the point here is that nobody ever dies for a bad person, for their enemy. 
But that's what God did, isn't it? God sent His Son to die for His enemies, for sinners, for ungodly people who are powerless to save themselves. See, how would you treat your enemies? I'm sure you all have enemies, right? Uh, not, no one is here as, as, as to have no enemies. Any, anybody have no enemies? If you have no enemies, then you don't understand what I'm talking about, right? <laughs> but how would you treat your enemy? Do you treat your enemy to dinner? Would, would, you, would you take your enemy and treat them to a 10-course dinner at a really expensive restaurant? Would you, would you uh, uh, buy them you know, a really expensive present for their birthday? Uh, would, you know, would you take them on a on a holiday, you know, to Europe? No, right? But but that's what God did, right? God did even more. He sent His Son to die for His enemies. See, see think about the uh, uh, America. Who is the public enemy of America? Osama bin Laden, right? What did they do to Osama bin Laden? They they shot and killed him, right? I mean, do you, do you imagine uh, Obama sending his son? To die for Osama? No, right? Huh? Sorry? Oh, sorry. You only got daughters. Okay, yeah, daughters. Okay, daughters. Yeah. But, but in a sense, that's what God did, right? What He did was to show something that man couldn't do. Right? Man's love is is. It's quite straightforward. We, we love people who love us back. We love people who are lovable. We love our friends. But God's love uh, was almost impossible. He loved His enemies and those who betrayed Him and those who didn't live up to His standard. And that's why it says there, in such clarity, in such contrast, right? but God demonstrates His own love for us in this way, in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, because of God's love, we know then that the hope of sharing the glory of God must, must come true. Because it says there in verse 9, Since we've now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through His life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You see, what the argument here is, is that we are sure of the hope of sharing God's glory because God has done the harder thing. He has justified us and reconciled us while we were enemies, powerless sinners, so now that we are already reconciled and justified, we are very sure that He will come and save us because we are now right with Him. So if you think of the argument, right? There's a oh, well, it's hard to see. Yeah. In the past, we were powerless, we were ungodly, we were enemies, we were sinners. But now we have been justified legally and reconciled relationally. So, in the future, we will definitely be saved from God's wrath and saved through Jesus' life. See, which is the harder part that God did? The harder part was to move from here to here, isn't it? Now that we are here, it's easy to move from being justified, reconciled with God, being God's friends and family, 
to when Jesus comes to share in the glory of God. See, God has already done the hard thing, giving up His Son to save sinners. So how much more should we have confidence that when Jesus comes again, we will share in the glory of God? See, that's a very, very powerful thing, isn't it? Because the, the passage actually ends where it starts from. It says, We can boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Reconciliation is a relationship word. It is a peace word. Reconciliation now means that we have peace with God. If we have peace with God now, presently, as we sit here today, June 7th, 2015, then we can be sure of the hope that when God comes again, we will share in the glory of God because we are no longer enemies with God. Now, I want to ask you a question, right? What do you hope for in life? Now, what do you hope for in life? Do you hope for a good job, good husband, a good wife, good kids, maybe a good fortune? The Bible says that you're setting your sights too low. Right? Because all these things, uh, a job, well, after a while you've got to retire someday, right? Uh, husband, wife and kids, well, you know, your kids will leave your house one day. Uh, good fortune, well, you can't keep it forever. And these hopes, for many people, will never come true, right? Nobody has it all. Right? Nobody has all their hopes come true? And anybody, you know, have every hope come true? No, right? There are some hopes which will never ever come true. They disappoint you. They put you to shame. But Romans chapter 5, God says that there is a certain hope. The hope of sharing the glory of God. And we presently have it already with us. We rejoice in something that we don't already have. We can boast in something that we don't have. Because God's love is so great that while we were sinners, He sent Jesus to die for us. And because Jesus has died for us, we are now justified, we are now reconciled, and we know that when God comes, we will have this certain hope. Anybody got any uh, questions? Oh, sorry, uh, for those of you who are new in the the third service, uh, we have a... uh, a question and answer time. So, um, any questions about the passage or, or what we talked about today? Colleen, Nick says you always have a question. So I said the, we rejoice in the hope of, sh- of sharing in the glory of God. Uh, it's not like we're tourists, right? So like, you know, when the glory of God comes, we just see it and like, oh, okay, that's really impressive, right? That's, uh, you know, that's really amazing. I, I think th- there is a real sense in which when the glory of God comes, we, we, will be, we will have a part in it. We will be 
partners in it, we will share in the glory of God. Because other parts of the Bible tell us how we will be glorified together uh, with, with uh, uh, Jesus, uh, our Savior, when He comes. So, that's why it says we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. It's, it's not just in terms of witnessing it, but actually being a part of the glory of God. Yes, yeah, that's right, yeah. Mm. Yes, that's right. That's why it's, it's a hope of something in the future, see. But but the whole of, actually, when you, see, if you, if you look at my notes, you can see all the different colors, right? <laughs> but, 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 but actually, when you, when, you, when you actually look at it, the whole, the whole of this section, verse 1 to 11, is to, to press home the point that this hope is a certain thing. That's why you're able to rejoice and to boast in it. Because, actually, technically, you cannot rejoice in something that's in the future, right? I mean, like, you can't boast about something that's in the future, but when, when it comes to God, you are able to boast in it. Because when He says you're going to get it, you're going to get it, and you, you are able to get it because you are presently uh, uh, reconciled, you're presently justified. Therefore, in the future, these things will come about. So actually, when you look in verse 1 to 11, it's always about what you have now allows you to be sure of what's going to happen in the future. That's why he keeps saying, right, in verse 9, we have now been justified, we have, you know, we've now received a reconciliation. So how much more... In the future, will you be saved and will you share in God's glory? Any other questions? Uh, yep. Boon? Yep. Uh, yeah. Because um, actually uh, the Bible uh, says that if, if you remember Romans chapter one, right? We are we are sort of in the state of rebellion against God. So it's not just um, so actually uh, the the our relationship with God is multifaceted, lah. So He's the Judge, right? So because we are unable to meet His standard, we are judged before Him. But we are also at the same time creatures who are. Uh, disobeying the Creator, so God made us for you know to to live in His world, but we are rebelling against Him and destroying His world, and and therefore, you know, it's like, it's not like God is this interpersonal being where He says, okay la, you you did something wrong, okay I'll go and look up my my law thing, okay you, this is it, you get find it, that's it. There there is a real element of personal uh, uh, animosity against you because. Uh, you you are you are you are you are actually disobeying God and and destroying uh, the fabric of of the world that He made yeah. So I remember one person gave a very good illustration. He said, "Imagine this is a real situation." So not not imagine. Uh. So he gave this illustration about this person in Australia who prepared a, a bedroom for the newborn baby, and some vandal threw a, a stone through the window. And, and while the baby was sleeping, la. so he felt very, very angry. And I think that in a sense, our relationship with God is like that. See, because God puts us in this world, if you look in the book of Genesis, to, to look after the world and to live under His rule, right? But instead, we've sort of gone our own way and done our own thing. So God is angry with us because He's destroyed. We've destroyed the world that, that He's intended. 
in the way that we relate to one another and also in our refusal to, to live under his authority. Because actually, fundamentally, if you look in the Bible, all sin is not uh, just, I, I, I broke this law. Fundamentally, sin is a refusal to live under the authority of God's ruler. So in the Garden of Eden, when there was sin, it was because Adam and Eve said they would try to be like God and, and, and actually uh, disobey God and eat from um, the, the, the tree of the knowledge of good of evil. So in that sense, not only are we sinners, but we are actually enemies of God because part of disobedience is actually rebellion against God, you see. Any other questions? Yeah. Oh. Because I think uh wait, go back yeah. Oh here. Because I think it's the word there uh, glory or rejoice is because he he sees what suffering produces la. Ah so so imagine like okay you suffer to produce rule right so 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 in the same way right you you can you can rejoice in 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 in, in or, or in or boast in your sufferings because through that suffering something good comes out of it see so so that's what he's saying here he's saying look we rejoice in the hope because it's a certain hope but but also we rejoice or boast in our sufferings because of what the the suffering produces you see because suffering produces perseverance and perseverance character and that character actually uh, um, shows an enduring hope that continues to hope in God's promises even in, in, in good times and bad times in the world that we live in. So our hope in, in, in God is not dependent on whether I'm having a good day this week or having a good time at work or I did really well on my exams but my hope is based on God's love and Jesus' death so I'm able to hold on to it even through suffering and, and enduring and, and, and uh, builds up my character to keep holding on and looking to, to God's love and Jesus, uh, even in, in bad times. So that's why it's a paradox, right? Because generally we don't rejoice or boast about sufferings, but we are able to boast or rejoice in sufferings in this way because it, it, it shows the, the true character of our hope that we are able to keep holding on even in bad times. Huh? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because if you look in verse 3 and verse 4, he's trying to expand on what he's saying at the end of verse 2, you see. So he says, we rejoice or we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Then he says, not only so, but we rejoice in our sufferings because it produces hope. And in verse 5, and hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love for us. So the, the rest of the section is expanding on, on why he, he's able to rejoice in hope. He's able to rejoice in hope even in bad times. He's able to rejoice in hope because this hope doesn't disappoint. It doesn't put us to shame. So that's why you're able to, to keep persevering even through suffering. Hmm. I think it's, uh, he doesn't expand on it, but definitely yes. If you keep focusing on the love of God and Jesus, then it allows you to, to, to keep 
holding on stronger and stronger. But I, I do think that uh, the testing of suffering actually, uh, in a sense, uh, clarifies and purifies our hope. Lah. So, um, you know, if you... I mean, this obviously comes from other parts of the Bible. But like, if you look in the book of Proverbs, the book of Proverbs, one of the Proverbs says, you know, uh, God, don't give me too much that I forget God, right? So, if you are, your life... In, your, in this world, is so uh, problem-free and you can solve all your problems here and you're filled with unbelievable riches, then actually it takes... I mean, the Bible does say that uh, it takes away from your hope in, in the glory of God, right? Because this world becomes more real and more important to you than, than, than the glory of God. So, yeah, to a certain degree, maybe that. He doesn't expand on it, but, but definitely within the context of their situation in the book of Romans, maybe they were suffering in some way, but he's trying to show them that actually suffering is not a bad thing, but actually suffering is a good thing in the context of eternity because it builds up hope. And this hope uh, is actually something which will not be put to shame, like will not disappoint you. So I think it's very important because in the world that we live in, um, many people think that, oh, you know, having uh, faith is like a crutch. You know, oh, you know, you can't deal with the real problems in life, so you need religion. You know, uh, you you need this like sort of superstitious belief because it helps you get through the day. You know, when you're really suffering and things are really bad. But but that's not what Romans chapter five says. See, uh, Romans chapter five says your 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 hope is based on something real and tangible: the death of Jesus and his resurrection on the cross, which assures you that your hope will not disappoint. So it's not so um, it's not like a wish. It's not like I wish Brazil win the World Cup. You know, it's not like this uh, desire. Ah, yeah, I hope that you know Brazil will win. It, it is based on something which is really real and tangible and uh, almost concrete, right, in its foundation. Anybody else? Touching your question. The resurrection life, I think. Okay, I think it's a very good question. Actually, I don't think it's 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 so simple. Uh, I think if you go back to chapter four, verse twenty-five. It says, he was delivered over to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification, right? I don't think the, 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 it's, trying to, um, it's trying to actually be so precise and say, oh, okay, when he dies, it's only for our sins. Then when he raised to life, then you know, it's only for our justification. I think actually the book of Romans sort of sees uh, the whole death and resurrection as, as one uh, process which, which brings us uh, resurrection, brings us new life sort of thing, right? So, I think that when it says, for if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through His life? Um, it is quite difficult to follow because I remember when I did read the commentary, it actually like try, you know, tries in different ways to explain it. But I think the whole point that is trying to be made here 
is that the death and resurrection of Jesus uh, assures us of our salvation when Jesus comes again. Because, see, verse 10 is actually parallel to verse 9, right? So now we've been justified by His blood, and blood is equal to death, right? So blood is, is equivalent to death. How much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? Right? So, so it doesn't say in verse 9 through His, his life, but, but you can sort of see that verse 10 and verse 9 are sort of parallel to each other. And it's sort of saying that the, the death and resurrection of Jesus is the process by which uh, we, we actually justify and reconcile. And it gives us the assurance that when He comes, we will actually be, uh, have a, a full assurance of hope. Yeah. So I think verse 10 is, is, is difficult. There's no doubt about it because it sort of splits the death and His life, right? Because the way we would understand it is how much more should we be saved through, through when He comes again. Um, but if you sort of read verse 9 and 10 as parallels, then I, I, I think it, it's sort of just trying to show that the death and resurrection of Jesus is, is one like, complete process in itself. Yeah. Mm. Because it sort of mirrors verse 25 of chapter 4, right? Uh, where he was delivered over to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification. Right? So... Um, in the book of Romans particularly, you cannot split the death and resurrection of Jesus. They're sort of fused together. Any last questions? Okay, if not, um, pass the time over to Minkit. Okay, uh, I think that was really dense. So, uh, please continue to chat among yourself. Just a show of hands, right? Uh, I think we have some menu speakers here with us.